everyone. Welcome to my podcast, Keeping It Real with Janine, your guide to living an authentic, healthy life. I'm Janine Strong, and every two weeks, I endeavor to have an inspiring conversation with an ordinary person leading an extraordinary life. My conversation today is with Jude Morrow, and I think we will all find Jude to be a true inspiration. Jude Morrow is the author of Why Does Daddy Always Look So Sad? For as long as Jude can remember, he has always been different with odd, quirky behaviors. Jude is on the autism spectrum and has been diagnosed with Asperger's. The difference now? Jude can embrace and love his differences, and he wants everyone like him to be able to do the same. Out of shame, he used to hide his autism, but Jude wanted to be someone his son Ethan could be proud of. This is a view of life and love through the eyes of a spectrum adult who evolved from being nonverbal and aggressive to having acceptance and letting go. So let's welcome Jude to the podcast. It's an honor to be speaking with you. Hi, Jude. Hi, Janine. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm really excited to uh, get speaking with you today. Yes, and we've had a lovely uh, sort of pre-recording chat, getting to know each other. And uh, I really honor you for for speaking out, for writing a book. You do a lot of presentations. And um, for someone who was not able to get along with people in the beginning of your life. You've really worked hard to change that. And you're such a good example and a, a good inspiration for others. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, I have. I, I, for as long as I can remember, I knew I wasn't like everybody else. And for a long time, I hated it. I was nearly like just an onlooker mm. through my whole life from a small child um, my one of my earliest schooling memories is whenever I was in the school playground and everybody was doing different things. And I do outline this in great detail in the book is that some children were kicking a ball around, some were b- b- playing different games and it was just so chaotic. And I, I remember so, so vividly standing in the playground and holding my teacher's hand and because I just didn't know what to do in that particular situation. And I just really, really hated that it's just it was almost the the way i compare it is uh, like someone standing on the the edge of a swimming pool and not knowing how to swim (laughs) it's Mm. just that fear of the unknown what happens when i jump in so i always reserve myself from doing so Mm -hmm. and i that that stayed with me for my most of my childhood and early adult life that just stayed with me that constant need to fit in that desire to fit in well, I think everybody wants to fit in. It's a natural human want or need. We, you know, we need we need support from other people. We need friendship. We we need to fit in somewhere in some way. And I can imagine how oh, wow how that would create a lot of anxiety and and depression. It did. I really did feel down about myself. I wouldn't say that I was the most confident person in the entire world. I don't even think I'd describe myself as that even right now. But back then, it was so difficult because I knew that other children could do something that I fundamentally couldn't, Mm -hmm. which was to be able to mix uh, with one another and form friendships easily. And I suppose those scars that I had, those kind of self-doubts and what I perceived to be inadequacies really deeply affected me into adulthood. And Mm -hmm. I suppose that's how, I mean, the 
the book came along and telling that whole story and it was it was really really hard and even reflecting upon it now whilst i have a lot of fond and happy memories of being a a child and being an autistic child in a mainstream school um some of it still is hard to take even now so it hasn't you know left me completely it's you know that difficult time in my life has defined who i am as a person now and the journey that it's about to take me on Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well and i i i know that uh one of the things that was really hard for you and that's hard for many who are on the spectrum in fact let's uh, let me just give some statistics here before we go on so people understand how important this discussion is about one in 59 children now has been identified with autism spectrum disorder and that's according to estimates from the CDC. Autism spectrum disorder is reported to occur in all racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic groups, and it's about four times more common in boys than it is girls. So as we were talking earlier, I was telling you that I was just in Costa Rica, and the owner of the wildlife sanctuary that I was working at, her son is on the spectrum, and I stayed with a wonderful Costa Rican family, and the son in that family is on the spectrum. So it's it's quite prevalent. Yeah, it is. It's uh, it's uh, it affects uh, everyone. It is absolutely everywhere, and not only. Um, is it everywhere? It has always really been here. I mean, I always say that, you know, without autistic people, the world wouldn't be where it is. I'm sure it was the autistic architect that designed the Great Pyramid of Giza and the other, uh, you know, autistic early man that uh, came up with the concept of the wheel. So Mm -hmm. I think uh, being autistic has always really been there. And I'll just allude to a bit of a part of the question. I know it is technically in, in the medical and nursing manuals called uh, autism spectrum disorder. Okay. I, I refrain from using the word disorder because for me, autism is a gift to be cherished. I, I do feel that way now. I didn't always, mm-hmm. although I want to say that I obviously don't speak for everybody on the spectrum. I know that there's those in the spectrum that have learning disabilities and so on and differing levels of need within that. And with the the autistic spectrum as a whole, I mean, it's not a sliding scale as one would imagine where, for example, with Asperger's syndrome would be identified as what one would call a high functioning autism. Mm -hmm. And there would be people, those with learning disabilities, that would be a much, much lower functioning Autism, it's not like a sliding scale and I am lower than someone else on it. The spectrum, suppose, uh, personifies the diversity of the people that lie within it. Like I have different interests to others. I have different ways of communicating than others. And I suppose that's one thing that I, one message that I want to take, you know, throughout the whole world is that with autism in its own right, for me, is just a different neurotype as opposed to a disorder of what one would view as a inverted commas normal mm-hmm. neurotype or brain functioning. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a perspective that I really want to share, and it's certainly one that a lot of people out there, I believe, agree with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I would agree. Um, so, what are some of the what are some of the behaviors that tend to be very common in people. It would it be okay just to say on the spectrum? 
Well, um, I, I personally don't mind that that terminology. I mean, with um, neurodiversity advocates and neurodiversity supporters, I would describe myself as an autistic person. I would do that now. I mean, since uh, Why Does Daddy Always Look So Sad came out, I have become a bit more educated uh, w- within the aut- autism and autistic community. Mm-hmm. And that, that is the, the term that I would use to describe myself. I am an autistic person and autistic people, autistic children, autistic adults. Uh, and so on. Okay. Well, I know I know that a lot of people you would say about traits and behaviors and immediately whenever people think of autism, in my view, because I mean, I have, have done my own speaking tour here, hopefully more in the US and all over the world and, and months and years to come. Mm-hmm. Whenever I ask people, what is being autistic? A lot of people will say things like, it's a lack of eye contact. It's a lack of social interaction. There's a lot of negative connotations on autistic life, mm-hmm. whereas my mindset had to change, which is again outlined in the book, that <clears throat> autistic people tend to have passions and focus and special interests that can be used to change the world, mm-hmm. like many autistic people beforehand. As I said, the perhaps autistic architect who designed the Great Pyramid of Giza there's talk of Stanley Kubrick having been autistic, who has perfected the medium of modern cinema. Mm-hmm. And um, even with Michelangelo and Mozart in the fields of art and music. So I think that's what being autistic is, is that having that logical way that the brain works to make the world better. Yes, there may be some people that do have social and communication difficulties. I had those. Mm-hmm. But I suppose they, they, those things are only difficulties that are relative to other children. For if, if we take that uh, statistic that you used, you know, one in 59, I mean, that one t- child to me can't be classed as different to the other 58. I mean, should that child fit in with the other 58 or should that child be celebrated as being uh, special and perfect in their own unique way? And I think that's... A lot of comparisons are made, and that's just the way we are as a species, unfortunately. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. Everything's comparable, whether it's wealth, mm-hmm. whether it's height or weight or social media followers or anything it may be. So that's that's one thing that always kind of you know gets to me is that mm-hmm. should this one child be brought in with the other 59 or should that child be revered as special and gifted compared to the other 58? Mm-hmm. I mean... It just is a perspective that I will spend the rest of my life trying to promote. Well, I mean, from my understanding, most people with autism are of higher than normal intelligence. Yes, that link is um, that link has been proven uh, over the decades, even from the 1940s, whenever the autism, autistic, or Asperger syndrome. Um, terms became more uh, widely known. Mm-hmm. One misconception, and I always, always like to say it with American interviewers, is that I feel from my experience, I feel that uh, uh, in the general North American society, people would use the term autism or autistic for things like learning disability as well. Um, um uh, that that seems to be what I have found because mm. whenever I say things like I believe that being autistic is a gift, I believe that uh, forcing autistic children to have friends is a lot more detrimental than 
their own comfort zone that mm-hmm. that should be respected mm-hmm. and a lot of people will say to me I do, I do questions and answer sessions after every live show and I try and speak to everyone I can and it always comes up that you know my child has intellectual disabilities and seizures and so on but they attribute that specifically to the autism whereas being autistic and having intellectual disabilities uh, can um, work can run concurrently without being uh, kind of intimately connected, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if I, I look at it this way, things like um, having, like not being able to look someone in the eye, that can be learned. You know, um, that's been my experience. I've seen that evolved, I- evolve in, in children where they are very socially uncomfortable and they learn to be, they can learn to be more comfortable. They can learn to uh, interact. It, it might not be, um, it might not be like, oh, flexible and, and spur of the moment, but there's a learning that can happen in how to interact with people and how to have a, you know, a nice exchange, a nice social exchange. Whereas being highly intellectual and bright or even brilliant, that's something you either have or you don't have. So, you know, the other things can be worked with, like you've talked about in your book. You're like an exponentially different person with all of the work and the therapy that you've done. Yeah, absolutely. And I I went through um, uh, psychotherapy and CBT um, because a lot of the issues and self-doubts that I had as a child deeply affected me into adulthood. And if you don't mind, for this conversation, is I know obviously I respect your position as the interviewer, but I do want to have a bit of a question of my own, is that you had spoken a bit about the... um, you know, eye contact can be learned. Mm-hmm. I mean, from an autistic point of view, and what autistic people try to advocate advocate and promote throughout the world is, why should it be? If an autistic person is not comfortable looking someone in the eye, realistically, trying to make them look someone in the eye or trying to teach someone eye contact when it's so uncomfortable for them is more detrimental I believe, Mm -hmm. than Mm -hmm. anything else. Because what happens is is that there is, again, back to the the 1 in 59, was it, statistic? Yes. Mm -hmm. Is that if the other 58 are comfortable making eye contact with people, why should the one be made to make eye contact to correlate with the other 58 people? Mm -hmm. Because really that isn't necessarily fair, I believe. And a a lot of people will think the same. Mm -hmm. A lot, uh, in, in the same way that uh, for everyone else, I am okay with eye contact personally. I always have been. Mm-hmm. But I know that there are some people out there who perhaps aren't so good at eye contact. And it's not something that I believe people should insist upon mm-hmm. or that people think is rude. Oh, this per- uh, person is not looking me in the eye. That's incredibly rude. And that's something, again, that I want to change. That is uh, someone's uh, method of communication. Funny you say that. I did do uh, an interview with an absolutely amazing autistic journalist who Mm -hmm. has been all over the world. He was in Iran, Afghanistan, uh, the South Pacific Islands. And not once during that interview did he look me in the eye. Mm -hmm. And that was okay. There was a kind of like this mutual understanding between us Mm -hmm. that 
And he was very comfortable that I didn't insist mm -hmm. that he looked me in the eye. He spent the entire time, even when he asked questions, looked at his head up from the notepad, he stared at the floor and that was absolutely <laughs> fine. Mm -hmm. And because I get him and he got me, we didn't push that. But again, the issue is the other 58 people mm -hmm. who would insist, why are you not looking me in the eye? Why, um, you know, and yes, I can see why that would be perceived as cold or rude, but again, back to my swimming pool analogy, that if a child can't swim and they're standing on the edge of the pool, telling them to jump in just doesn't work in the right. same way right. that telling an autistic person to look you in the eye is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any um, um, distinguishable comparison between both those things. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jude. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And I just to be clear, I wasn't really suggesting that a person be forced my experience has been with someone that they wanted to learn because they oh, yes. just because they wanted to fit in better and they wanted to have friends. And so I watched the evolution, which I, it was kind of, it was interesting, you know, and, and it was amusing in a loving sort of way to see the evolution of not being able to even say hello to someone or to greet them and to see the evolution of that occurring so that the person felt comfortable. And, oh, um, oh, definitely. but it was never forced. And, and I would certainly never force anyone. I would honor their, their level of comfort and, um, and I would want them to be comfortable. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, with, um, with people out there, unfortunately, um, while there are uh, uh, progressive and modern thinkers like you and I, the other, um, if there's how many people in the world, 7 billion, so the um, other um, the 6 billion, 999,000 million, 999,998 <laughs> people, unfortunately don't. And that's the problem. Um, that a lot. Of, I know that I have met some autistic people that have wanted to learn that have trained themselves and who do want to look people in the eye for the pur purpose of growing their business and becoming uh, a lot more socially aware. Mm -hmm. And that's, mm -hmm. that's absolutely fine as well. But uh, what I, where I do draw the line is whenever people think it should be bestowed upon autistic people, mm -hmm. that's really where the problem does start. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. I would agree. Have you found that in general, there's like a, a specific area that a person um, on the spectrum tends to excel in? Not necessarily, no? because okay. if you, if with um, the, auto, the, the autistic spectrum, with the spectrum itself, because it is so diverse, mm -hmm. a lot of people would assume that, especially for careers, that uh, autistic people would have uh, STEM careers, uh, science, mm -hmm. technology, mm -hmm. engineering, and mathematics. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily the case because you have me who throws a big spanner in the works and as a social worker <laughs> who works with people every day. And I have, um, I believe I have gone pretty well in the last, what, nearly eight years since I've been doing the job. Mm -hmm. And I think that with autistic people, I don't believe that they should be limited to one specific career path, one specific social path or anything mm -hmm. because with me, whenever I work with people, do I get people a lot of the time? No. Do I understand mainstream social norms all the time? No. But one thing I can do in every situation is apply my uh, logically wired mind for any crises or any difficult situations. I think I have an advantage wherein I can look at the situation as logically as I can, mm -hmm. deduct a conclusion, 
and give people the best advice I can to achieve positive outcomes for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what was your, how, how did you choose social work? What, what was the impetus for you to go in that direction? Well, Well, what happened, I was in the same position that many, many autistic teenagers are in in the world and that I didn't have very many friends. I maybe had a select two or three at most. Mm -hmm. I didn't have like a large social group or uh, many social outlets. And at that time, whenever I was a teenager, my parents uh, didn't actually tell me that I was autistic Mm -hmm. because they didn't want the label put on me and they treated me like they would if I wasn't autistic. But I was spending a lot of time alone, and over time they encouraged me to join a local youth group. Again, it wasn't an autistic-specific group because they weren't really um, prevalent back in the early 2000s whenever I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. So I went to a youth group, and I really enjoyed it. I made a lot of friends for life that I still have, Mm -hmm. that I am eternally indebted to. And I became a youth leader within that group. And I suppose it was only natural that I pursued a career in social work then uh, when I went to university. Mm -hmm. So I noticed in your book, I'm glad you brought that up, that there were quite a few situations where you became the leader. Yeah, there was. And it nearly seemed because I'm so logical, I'm not great at gray areas. I'm, I'm very good at overanalyzing situations and picking the most uh, important bits of information out. And because it was a charitable group, I um, was involved in funding applications, securing funds for the group and keeping it going along with the other group members. And I did realize um, even then that I was quite a difficult individual to say no to if I had a, a focus on my mind that was like a laser focus I am going to pursue this and I am not going to stop until I get it mm-hmm. and that's what happened and I suppose within that that is where my book has got to because when I brought why does daddy always look so sad out whenever I finished writing it I uh, nobody wanted it no publisher <laughs> or literary agent would take me on oh my and, I decided to self-publish the book then, and a happy byproduct of that is that a lot of people resonated with it, and I just kept going. I just believed in it so much and that I could kind of take it to the highest heights that I possibly could do, mm-hmm. and I suppose whenever I was younger, when it, you know, as far back as I can go, any outcome that I wanted for myself or others or any targets that I set, I just had this almost obsessional desire to achieve them. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that it's my understanding that that's kind of one of the traits is is that laser focus when there's something that you're really interested in. Yeah, there is. And I mean, what, what you, p, autistic people apply in that laser focus, that obsession, as it's called, whenever you're autistic, it's called an obsession. And mm-hmm. if you're not autistic, Janine, it's called being an expert. So <laughs> <laughs> that... <laughs> That's that's another thing. I mean, Albert Einstein spent a lot of time in isolation and uh, spending time in his own company trying to perfect the laws of the universe that we know now, like special and general relativities in the space-time interval. Mm-hmm. So with that focus, he achieved something that has changed our understanding of the world and the whole universe, all 93 billion light years of it mm-hmm. in diameter. So... I think using that focus is always, always a good thing, and it should always be nurtured by teachers and parents. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, I, I would agree. Because if you can, if it, well, just for anyone, if you can figure out what you're good at and what you enjoy doing, um, you'll be much happier in life. Absolutely. And I, I, would, I would say that forevermore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the um, one of the ways of being, I guess you could say, that I've noticed is with people on the spectrum is the tendency to be very literal and concrete. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I am very literal. I am very concrete. Whilst I am quite funny sometimes in my own right. I have a I have a sense of humor. There you go. You laughed. Autistic people can make non-autistic people laugh. There we go. That is a misconception. Smashed and hopefully it goes viral all over the internet. Um, but there are some things that I do take literally. Um, sarcasm can be difficult. I can be sarcastic outwardly, but when I am in receipt of it, sometimes I can miss it. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, that's been my experience too. Is, yeah, so, sarcasm doesn't go over very well. <laughs> No, I mean, uh, I did. I did hear somewhere that sarcasm is anger's ugly cousin, and that's the way I view it. So, ah, uh, uh-huh. I, I refuse to uh, recognize it. Um, maybe uh, automatically uh, in my brain. So sometimes, if people are joking with me, sometimes I'll not get it, or uh, I. Some people have to intervene. Um, if um, if somebody says, ah, you know, that people say, ah, get out of town, ah, get out of here. There have been times where I have got up and left. So, <laughs> um, and sometimes I still do that. So oh, sorry, but that's very funny. Say, uh, yeah, Jude, you've just taken that literally. And I'm like, oh God, okay, I'm sorry. So has any research been done on that? I, I'm just, I, I've always found it very curious why that is a common trait. It's it's just in the way that my brain is wired. It's just the way uh, it's just the way we are um, as autistic people. Hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just the, it just seems to be the way they are. And I know that a lot of people want to have answers and so on. And you know why are autistic people like this? I'm not sure of any research. Uh, I do understand that autistic people can have other needs. I'm not. I wouldn't describe myself as a soapbox, megaphone wielding. Uh, militant uh, for the autistic community and I do understand that autistic people do have other uh, mental health and social needs that do need uh, that do need research and development to provide uh, support for those uh, who are autistic and needed mm-hmm. but as far as um, you know a definitive answer as to why uh, autistic people don't get jokes sometimes like me I don't get <laughs> jokes a lot of the time um, I'm but I'm it's sure interesting you- that you can tell jokes but you don't get other people's jokes. <laughs> oh, well, I get some. I get, I, I get some, and that's, and I, I am a genuine filter if people are funny or not. If I laugh at your joke, you are funny. Except <laughs> if, if I laugh at your joke, you are genuinely funny. Although there's people like my boss, agent, publishers, and all these people that I do have to give what I call boss laughs, like <laughs> a perfect. I've, I've perfected that. If I don't get their joke, I'll perhaps laugh anyway. I don't know. Um, so is it insincere? It probably is. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll leave that to the side. But I mean, I don't understand why people want an answer to that. Is there research into that? I'm sure there's a lot more interesting things people could research. Because with me being autistic, the bottom line is it's simply how I am. And it's simply how we are. It's just the type of brain that we have. 
Mm-hmm. We can be funny. We can be empathetic. We can be a lot of the things that society says we are not. And that's um, it's just something that I have taken upon myself to try and break down day by day, person by person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about sensory overload? I know uh, in reading your book, that was something that was very painful for you as a child. Did you outgrow that? Have you outgrown that or have you learned to deal with it differently? Or maybe you want to talk a little bit about that because it seems to be a common trait. Option B, I have learned to live with it much, much better. From the bottom line, pretty much being that the world does not stop for me. The war I have to learn to function and live and parent within this crazy, loud, smelly, annoying world. (laughs) I have to learn to live within it. There's some things that I struggle with. For example, it is quite clearly outlined in the book. There's some kind of chaotic children's areas that I do struggle with. But I am okay at a concert because everybody's facing the same way, doing the same thing, and the noise is organized because it's music. Um, Whereas in some situations are are a bit more chaotic, like festivals and fairs and so on, uh, that I do struggle with uh, a little bit. Mm -hmm. I learn to live with it. And I don't, a lot of the time, I don't feel that it's necessarily the noise itself. I don't think that it's the loud music. It's the screeching of children's shoes on lacquered floors, Mm. that it's chalk running across a chalkboard. I think it's that inadequacy that a lot of autistic people feel like I felt. Why do I feel uncomfortable? And that's a very hard emotion to regulate. Why do I feel uncomfortable? Even if someone turns the volume down, Mm -hmm. it's the fact that I felt uncomfortable at that noise and other people did not. Mm -hmm. Do you see what I mean? Yes, yes, I do. So I suppose it's recognizing that that discomfort is there, that the world does not stop for me, and that other people do depend on me to function and to survive. For the likes of Ethan, he's only six. Mm. So I needed to kind of learn to live with things a little bit easier. It's an ongoing process, though. I'm not healed or cured, nor would I ever want to be good grief. <laughs> but at least day by day and hour by hour, I do learn to live with things a little bit easier. And, and just it just comes down to acceptance. Mm-hmm. Autistic people accepting themselves and other people accepting autistic people as well mm-hmm. is, where, is where it all comes down to. Uh, do you have? Are there any other senses that you find or seem to be a little more heightened? I was wondering uh, actually about smell than than other people. Well, as far as senses, um, I'll tell you a funny story. Okay. I was in Portugal with a group of friends about four years ago, mm-hmm. four maybe four maybe five years ago, and um, there was uh, like a like a drink that involved eating a full chili. Ooh. Like a and one thing that I got, and I love really, really love hot food. I think my my senses are dulled in the taste department. So what I got it was a Trinidad Scorpion chili, which is the same chili that is used in police pepper spray. Oh. And of course, me and my bravado, I ate the whole thing, and I think my taste buds have been permanently damaged. So um, as far as that sense, I killed that myself, but. I think uh, even in modern medicine, it's, I, I know a lot of people associate with the sixth sense 
six senses. Mm-hmm. But we, I think we actually have between nine and 20, which includes things like direction, acceleration, and pain. Mm-hmm. I think I have quite a low pain threshold. Okay. I have a good sense of direction sometimes. Mm-hmm. I can navigate quite well. Don't ask me to read a map. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I always seem to have a good sense of where I am and where exits are if I need to flee immediately ah, interesting. and save the okay. world. Like, yeah, if I mm-hmm. need to go into a phone box, change into Superman and go and save the world. So mm-hmm. I've, um, I, th- I think those senses can be quite heightened as well. Mm-hmm. Well, you're doing better than me because I do not have a good sense of direction. <laughs> <laughs> My friends know that if they ask me a direction and I tell them, like if I tell them to go to the right, they know they should go to the left. Okay. So I, <laughs> So if you're ever giving me directions, hold on, do I write this down? If Janine gives directions, <laughs> go the opposite way. Because I take things literally. I would go left. <laughs> well, I would I, go I, the way you tell me to go. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I lived in New York City for a while. My first husband and I lived in New York City. And I can remember because, you know, they're all really tall buildings. So you can't, you know, it's it's kind of not claustrophobic, but, you know, you can't really see out anywhere. So I, like if I went into a, you know, say a department store or something, and I come out, I would just go in the direction that it felt like the right way to go. And then I'd turn and go the other way. And it worked out every time. <laughs> oh, that's funny with New York. I've, I have been to New York and I felt really comfortable in New York. I was always very anxious to go to New York because I thought it would be loud. There'd be steam coming up from vents in the ground. It would Mm -hmm. be black and white and it would just be a really kind of scary place. But because it's so vast, Mm -hmm. I think I managed uh, quite well in it and was able to navigate around quite well. So it it just goes to show some things I would have pre- uh, preconceptions about certain things, especially big cities. Uh-huh. And sometimes when I when I get there, uh, New York to me wasn't as daunting as I thought it would be, which which was which is interesting. It's something that's always stuck with me. I have avoided New York like the plague for a long time. Um, whenever I was actually over there, I, I I did have to go. I had to go to New York. It was unavoidable. I had to go, so I had to uh, I had to put my happy face on. Uh-huh. And I managed very well. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I used to get lost all the time. <laughs> Another topic that I wanted to look at a little bit is the tendency to not be able to understand other people's point of view. Because I, I think that tends to be rather common. Would you say it was to the point of being kind of narcissistic or or not? It just struck me that that sounds like this could be kind of a narcissistic behavior, but maybe it's not really considered that. I don't think it's necessarily that. But I think with narcissism, narcissism uh, in a in a traditional context would mean um, a bit a self absorption with mm-hmm. a realization that one is doing it. Whereas okay. with me, because I have a different neurotype, it's perhaps a lot more unconscious than I. Characteristic narcissist mm. would be okay. So it's a lot more subconscious or unconscious uh, with me. And you say that you know autistic people can have difficulty understanding other people's points of view, whereas that is relative. Because for me, I always wonder, God, why can't people just explain themselves a lot more clearly? 
<laughs> as opposed to why should I have to try and understand you? It's all about dialogue for me. If I don't immediately um, understand something, I will ask clarification on it. And I know more than anybody uh, that it can be a little bit conflicting with people. People can be very, very uncomfortable with it because I don't understand things. Mm-hmm. And and times gone by, I would have just went along not understanding and felt inadequate because of it. Mm. But I do try to see other people's points of view. And if other people are very militant in their point of view, a lot of people may think that I'm challenging them or that I'm criticizing or judging them. But I'm not. I'm just I'm, I have a being autistic for me. It's like a, an unquenchable thirst for knowledge. Mm-hmm. I just want to know people. I just when I take an interest in someone or something or somebody, whatever. I just need to know absolutely everything about them or it. Whereas I, I feel a lot of maybe non-autistic people would be very overly defensive. Mm. And then it can create like a conflict. And then it's like, oh, are they shouting at me? Stop it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems to me that, that it's healthier to want to take an interest in people, want to know who they are and where they're coming from. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, neurodiversity is a beautiful thing. As I know that a lot, there are people that aren't like me, and I am not like them. And I think mutual understanding is the way forward, as opposed to one group people saying these people need repaired to be like the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Very true. So, what what do you feel has helped you the most in being able to? feel good about yourself and and be able to relate to other people in a more comfortable way? From whenever I was young and from the book, I have had reading and writing skills mm-hmm. that have been pretty good from when I was about three or four years of age. And that has always been there. I've always been able to communicate much, much better in the written word mm-hmm. as opposed to the spoken word. Okay. So that's why I, it just goes to show, although the the book, I, I wrote the book, but a lot of the book has me writing right the way through it. There are parts and scenes, and like even on the cover of the book, I am sitting with a notepad and pen in my hand. <laughs> so I have always written, and that has been my favorite way to express myself. Because mm-hmm. even when young, to communicate a bit more effectively, to write creatively, and I, I, like I'm not a diarist or anything. I've never kept diaries. I'm not like Anne Frank or a wimpy kid. I just have always written things down for the one reason being that if I write something down that troubles me or makes me really happy, I can always leave it and then revisit it and interpret it in my own time. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like um, my best description of it it's like taking a picture of a waterfall you really appreciate its beauty after you see it a little while later in a photograph mm-hmm. with me with writing things down i can look back on it and either interpret it in my own way and and do whatever i need to do with it and that's a habit that's always stayed with me and ethan gathered very early in life as you know that i wasn't like him mm-hmm. so I needed to go on that, you know, acceptance journey to accept that I was autistic and I will be for the rest of my life. So I may as well be happy. So that's the overall, uh, I suppose, theme of the book. But the reason why I wrote the book itself was because I knew 
that this conversation would happen. And I wanted to give my story justice. A lot of people would sit their children down opposite them and tell them their story. I didn't know if I could do my injustice by doing that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's how the book was born. And that's the Mm -hmm. book we have now. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you would like to talk a little bit about CBT because you mentioned that. And I know about it just from my medical background. And I know people who are, have done and are doing CBT therapy. But in my experience, most people have never heard of it. And from what you wrote in your book, it seems like that was a very important uh, way of helping you to understand yourself and to to be able to interact better and, and just feel better about yourself. What does CBT stand for? And maybe you could talk a little bit about it so that if anyone was interested, they, they might want to look into it. CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of negative experiences whenever I was growing up, whenever I was a child, the child teachers rolled their eyes at, the child that other children picked on. And it was very hard for me to get over those things overnight. Even as a young man, those experiences and sensations very much stayed with me. Mm -hmm. And although in my early adulthood, I knew I was autistic, although whenever I thought about being autistic as a young man in my early 20s. I thought that that was a phase that I basically went through when I was young. I had no understanding or concept that I would be autistic for my entire life. And CBT would help individuals reframe their thinking and experiences to try and rid oneself of a, a negative bias. I had so many overwhelming feelings of self-inadequacy because I was so different to everyone else. Mm -hmm. Whereas I had a wonderful childhood, a wonderful early adulthood. I have a wonderful career. I have a wonderful house, but none of that mattered. Mm -hmm. And I suppose with cognitive behavioral therapy, it is a, a standpoint to give people a more positive outlook on life. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And it certainly helped me. Oh, I'm glad you found it. Yeah, it does seem to be, I, I know it doesn't work for everyone, but for a lot of people, even without being on the spectrum, CBT can be very helpful in helping to heal early traumas. Oh, absolutely. It has. Um, I mean, cognitive behavioral therapy has been peer-reviewed for decades and has been helpful uh, across a wide, wide range of circumstances from PTSD, psychotic depression, even those uh, with um, other uh, mental ill health and even autistic people like me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Jude, I found something I found really interesting in your book was and I will call it an obsession, that the obsession of running, that you became so obsessed with running, what was that about? Well, I (laughs) had looked, (laughs) whenever I started running, I wanted to have a hobby or an outlet to expend my energy and try and regulate my thoughts Ah. that a lot of people use with exercise Mm -hmm. or yoga or -hmm. meditation or flower arranging or coin or stamp collecting or whatever it may be. (laughs) But for me, I couldn't keep it as a healthy hobby. Uh, It eventually started to consume me somewhat. (laughs) And it took over me. And whenever I take on a hobby, 
I always want to be the best at it and I want to know everything about it mm. and I set myself lofty goals. It's the way I've always been. And more recently, a colleague of mine runs a Subudio club and what Subudio is, it's like a tabletop football soccer game. Oh, okay. And I had never played it before last year and now I am trying to climb up the world Subudio <laughs> rankings <laughs> so that'll never leave it's just a um, whenever i take an interest in something it's along the same theme of uh, wanting to perfect myself at mm-hmm. it okay so you don't do anything halfway oh no no half measures <laughs> with jude no absolutely not as i i don't wade into the water i don't go from you know toes to ankles to knees to waist to neck i jump straight in just jump in yeah straight I... in feet first sometimes head first well, I, I would imagine that that has its positive side as well as perhaps sometimes the not so positive side. <laughs> oh, 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 oh! I mean, it does. It's 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 trial and error. It's finding that one uh, passion or special interest that makes you happy, that you know you're good at, and that you can use it for your own and the benefit of others. Um, something I wanted to ask you about because I th- it was a term I hadn't heard before and maybe you could just talk a little bit about it because you talk about it in your book uh, autistic masking yeah whenever I was a teenager it was a lot more apparent that I wasn't like the other boys in my school and I suppose it was that constant need and desire to fit in Mm -hmm. and to kind of hide my autistic self kind of suppress it I suppose it's out of shame. And masking isn't specifically kept within the autistic community. A lot of other, um, a a lot of a lot of other situations, people do mask. It's I had this shame and self inadequacy all through my life that I just had this overwhelming and burning desire to be like everyone else, whereas I didn't really accept myself at that time. So whenever I would have masked myself, it didn't always uh, have positive outcomes for me. But it was just that constant, constant teenage desire to be like other teenagers, Mm -hmm. which was never, ever going to happen. Mm -hmm. So how would you define masking? Suppressing your true self. Okay. Hiding who you really are. Mm -hmm. Out of shame, out of guilt, out of fear, out of anger, out of sadness. A lot of people have a lot of reasons why they mask. Mm Mm-hmm. And I've masked all the time. I'm, am I proud of it? No. But do I understand why people do it? Yes, absolutely, I do. Yes, yeah, so you certainly don't have to be on the spectrum to do that. Absolutely not. So what changed things for you? Whenever I, um, I uh, qualified as a social worker, I was working, I had a girlfriend at the time, mm-hmm. and I found out that I was going to be a dad. Mm. And I, the sudden life change was was a lot for me to take in, a lot for me to cope with. And at that point, I had become so obsessive and fearful of the sudden life change of becoming a father that I basically isolated myself in a room mm. in my parents' house for about six months. Oh, my goodness. And had alienated absolutely everyone. Oh, and that's another... Um, thing that I want to break down, this notion of high-functioning autism. Mm-hmm. Because, yes, I could communicate reasonably well. I had a professional degree. I had a car. And I just didn't function very highly at that time. And I suppose then it was 
my kind of behaviors or traits or whatever people call it. A lot of the time I'm terrified when I'm being interviewed because some people say, oh, I didn't like that word you said. I didn't like that word you say. So it's this constant need to be careful. Mm. That is very difficult. So mm-hmm. whenever um, Ethan was born on the 23rd of July, 2013, my life, like any new parent's mm. life, just changed forever. Mm-hmm. And it was a big conflict for me of absolute joy love and wonder and kind of being overwhelmed sadness and and uh, that fear that fear of the unknown and i had again thought that being autistic was something that i'd left behind in my childhood and as ethan grew up as a small child a lot of those fears still stayed with me this kind of burning desire for routine to the point where Ethan actually asked my my mother, why does daddy always look so sad? And mm. that became the title of the book. And that was the real turning point for me. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Wow. Well, you've had quite the journey, haven't you? I have. It has been absolutely crazy. And because <laughs> you're speaking with me now, and for all of your listeners, it's not a plot spoiler. I don't die at the end. <laughs> and... Not yet, anyway. <laughs> I, I come out the other side of it, and ultimately what I wanted to have was a book for my son. I did not ever in my wildest dreams imagine that it would have got to where it is to the point of being published by Beyond Words, by having my own agent, my own speaking tour here, and soon to be in the United States. I never, ever thought that it would ever go this far. This was a book that I wrote for my son, I would love to be a marketing hero and champion and say, I wrote this so all autistic people in the world can learn to accept and love themselves, but I can't because it's not true. What that became, what my book became, was that was a happy byproduct of it, Mm -hmm. is that people did read my story and think, God, I went through what you went through, or my children or child is going through what you went through, and it gives hope for us that there could be light at the other side, and... That's why I want to go as far and wide as I possibly can to to tell people that, that being autistic isn't a death sentence. If anything, that whenever I changed my own mindset and my own thought patterns, it is the greatest gift that I've ever been given. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I realize that this was a journey, this last part of your life here, that you hadn't expected, but I'm certainly glad that that everything aligned in this way so that you can share your story and with a wider group and and you can give hope and inspiration for people. And I mean, that wasn't my initial intention at the start, but whenever I found out that it was inspiring people, it was giving people hope, I wanted to do that for as many people as I possibly could. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that the book as a piece of text has a real resilient story of my own. And I'm actually sitting holding it right now. That's, mm-hmm. that's one of the uh, original Amazon books. Whenever um, no literary agent would take me on at the time, uh-huh. I um, just put the book out myself. And all of a sudden, I found it climbing the Amazon charts. And um, within a couple of months, I then secured myself a literary agent who is the best in the entire world. And then Beyond Words Publishing have... Um, Uh, are publishing the book now and are agree with my ethos with my message and are helping me to spread it all over the world and 
it just seems that my life was getting over one obstacle and then another being presented in my way and without going too much into it I'm two weeks out from the release date and we have the events that are going on in the world right now and I just hope that that's another thing that this wonderful text that I'm very proud of can overcome as well. Uh, well, I've had some great conversations with the people at Beyond Words. I really like them. Yeah, I think it's a great group of people who are really trying to do some good in the world. Oh, they are. I just wanted to say, and when I upload this, it will be right around the time when uh, your book will be released. And I think it can be pre-ordered, can't it? It can. It can be pre-ordered on my uh, website, www.judmorrow.com. And the North American release date is April 7th on uh, paperback and Kindle. And in the UK, Ireland and Europe, it will be the 25th of May. So the pre-order is live now. Uh, I suppose whenever uh, we go to air, um, if you're hearing this after the 7th of April, it is available now (laughs) on www.judmorrow.com. We are live. Everything is going ahead, which I'm delighted with. Uh, I didn't know if it would, given the the global situation. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, we we have come out the other side of it, and uh, there uh, the audible book, the audio book, is available now on Audible. Oh, great, great! I love Audible because I knit and crochet a lot, and you can't read and knit and crochet at the same time. So I listen to books. <laughs> <laughs> no, the book the book is there. The book is uh, on Audible uh, as as well. That was that was pre recorded. And are you the are you the reader? For the I book? am not. Oh, okay. I am not the the reader of the book is uh, Canadian Adrian Newcastle, who is one of life's good people. Great. Who has been a has been in my corner from when the audiobook came out. He has been instrumental in everything. He's been wonderful. He really oh. has. And. Um, yeah, that's uh, he's just as excited for the relaunch as I am. Oh, that's awesome. So I know we're in, um, <clears throat> you know, social distancing right now. But when that's over, if people would like to connect with you, maybe have you speak, um, how would people do that? How would people connect with you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, for all speaking engagements, they all go through my website under the speaking tab, just okay. uh, completing uh, the form. I have had a speaking tour of my own here, which has been fantastic, and it's raised thousands and thousands of pounds and euros for uh, autistic causes and support groups and uh, and so on, which has worked out really, really well. Um, I did have a um, an American leg of the tour, which unfortunately has been cancelled, mm. uh, or sorry, not cancelled, postponed, postponed, should I say, mm-hmm. uh, until uh, later in the year or perhaps maybe even early next. But um, reach out to me. I am loving conversations with people at the moment. So there is that uh, speaking tab on my website, www.judemorrow.com. I have my own author page on Facebook at Jude Morrow Author. I'm on Twitter at, at Jude Morrow 10. On Insta, I'm at Jude Morrow. <gasps> there we go. I said it all in one breath. Wow, so, good for you. So get in touch with me. Yeah, get Great. in touch with me. Absolutely. I love I love speaking with readers and hearing other people's stories as well as sharing my own. Okay, great. That's, that's good to know that people uh, can personally contact you if they, you know, if they feel like you can maybe help them to move forward. What, um, by the way, before we end, I wanted to ask you as a social worker, what area are you specializing in? Um, care of the elderly, dementia uh, okay. care. Um, mm-hmm. 
that's that's what I've been doing now the last um, the last few years. I, I've I've done a couple of different fields. I've done hospital social work. I've done uh, I've worked with uh, learning disabilities in another job that was perhaps outside of social work, mm-hmm. and now I'm back uh, doing community based uh, primary care for older people, mm-hmm. which I really enjoy. Oh, good, good. Yeah, that's a that's an important field. It is. I'm out on the front line uh, in these difficult times trying to um, help and comfort as many uh, vulnerable people as I can in this very difficult climate that we're in now. Mm-hmm. I know it's it's hard right now for a lot of people. I, I know people who have parents in a nurse, nursing homes and they can't go visit now. Yeah, and, I know. It's very unfortunate. Mm-hmm. That's That's pretty tough. I think a lot of people are using FaceTime and things like that so that least they can keep a connection and and their loved one who's in a nursing home or some kind of a care facility at least doesn't feel like they've been abandoned. Yeah, I know. I know. It's, uh, it's great that technology is uh, helping us uh, get through this. Well, awesome. It's it's really been wonderful talking to you. Do you have is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to or a, a message that you'd like to leave people with before we end? I think we have covered absolutely everything. I do want to say this one last, my closing remark okay. that I try to give to as many people as possible. If you're um, a parent out there and you suspect that your child is autistic, mm-hmm. or you believe your child to be autistic, should I say, because maybe suspect has a bit of a negative connotation. If you believe your child to be autistic, the chances are that you're right, because I and all of my travels, I've never met a parent who believed their child to be autistic and been wrong. Mm-hmm. If you want help and support, a diagnosis isn't always your primary gateway to help and support. Reach out to charitable groups, reach out to online social groups to get support for you and your child. Because I've never encountered an autistic charitable or voluntary group that has turned people away without a diagnosis or that don't have a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. I've never come across that. So I'd urge and implore every parent or caregiver, whoever it may be, to reach out to these groups as much as you possibly can. Explain your situation because it will help you to meet other parents in the same position as you and it'll help your autistic child meet other autistic children like Mm. them. Something I would have loved whenever I was growing up. Unfortunately, didn't have. Had to make a ton of mistakes which I have outlined in my book. Mm-hmm. Yes, I can imagine that it would have been really wonderful to have a friend who was similar to you and who could relate to the difficulties you were having and that you could support each other. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I sometimes wonder if my life would, be, would have been different. Uh, would I have accepted myself a lot earlier in life? Mm-hmm. Maybe I would have. It's just too difficult to say. Mm-hmm. Hypotheticals don't uh, work well with me either. So, um, yeah, it's, it's something I, th- I do think about quite often. Mm-hmm. I think it is a good point for someone that does have a child who, who they feel is on the spectrum. It is fairly common these days. I, it shouldn't be hard to find another child that maybe your child could develop a friendship with. Absolutely. I agree with that totally. I agree totally. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Jude. Good luck with your, your new book coming out. Uh, I just honor your, your journey and who you are and all that you're doing to be an inspiration. Thank you. 
Oh, and thank you so much for having me on. I've loved every second of it. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. It was fun. Okay, I well, let's stay in touch and uh, take care and be well. Certainly. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you, everyone, for being here with me. And thank you, Jude Morrow, for being so authentic and honest in your journey. I honor you. The podcast website is realjanine.com, where you can listen to or download episodes. Click on links to my guest information and sign up for the podcast bi-weekly blog newsletter. That way you can keep up on new and archived episodes, interesting topics, and healthy recipes. And remember, Janine is J-A-N-E-A-N. To subscribe to Keeping It Real with Janine, go to iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. And if you prefer YouTube, uh, I do have a YouTube channel with video slideshows of my conversations. Do you know someone who would enjoy my conversation with you tomorrow? I'm sure you do. Please share the love. It really helps. Thanks for listening. Take care and be well.